Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I'm going to flip the tables a bit. I will actually be the guest. Uh, my good friend and uh, fellow financial advisor, Guy Anderson, is going to be the guest host. So really today's goal is to explain some of the acronyms and nomenclature and tech speak that we keep on using on this show. Several people have emailed me, asked me questions about what was this you said specifically and what is that? So we're going to try to get away with, with that. And this is really, I entitled this FinTech 101. So this is explaining a lot of the terminology and hopefully you enjoy it and hopefully it builds your understanding a little bit better. So with that, here's me and Guy. Hello, Guy. Hey, Jason. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, you're hosting today, so you get to turn the mic over to you. Well, yeah, I'm happy to do it. So first of all, before we get going, I want to congratulate you on your success. Oh, thank you. And I don't know how you, uh, how you plan on measuring success, Jason, but if your objective was to reach people like myself who like podcasts and are in the financial services industry and like technology, you've hit your mark. And so if your target audience was one, I'm your guy. Great. Uh, you can be my sponsor. Okay. Uh, yes. Well, thank you very much. It's been a lot of good feedback thus far. I'd like to, if anyone wants to reach out, feel free to email me at jason at fintechimpact.co because it's uh, always interesting to hear from you. And I've had a lot of good conversations since, since this started. Yeah, you really have. You've had a lot of good conversations with uh, you know, Plan Plus and, and, uh, and Lending Loop and others. Yeah. And, and I've enjoyed all your, all your podcasts. But rather than spending time on the past, let's, let's jump right into it. So my understanding is we'd like to cut through some of the jargon here yeah. on, on financial terminology and such. Yeah. So Jason. Sorry, it's funny because I remember back in university, I had an engineering buddy who said, what is it with you people in business having to create acronyms out of everything? <laughs> the worst part of business that does that is definitely finance. And you throw technology in there and finance and we're, we're rife with language that people just don't understand. Absolutely. It can be very confusing. So, yeah. so without, without delaying this any further, so uh, Jason, what does API stand for? I yeah, hear so, it all the time. God, I, that's a term I drop in basically every conversation I have. So API is basically an acronym for Application Protocol Interface. And really what that is, is a, a way or a language or rules that basically a company puts out there for something else to talk to its program. So simply, if anyone's ever been online and said, hey, you can tie in this program to something else and have them talk to each other, they talk through APIs. So basically it's like someone saying, here's the rule book for how you access this data. And let's say, for example, I wanna connect my calendar system to my CRM, right? Very simple, at least it looks very simple. Someone has to come in the middle there and basically create a code that basically will say, okay, well, this person is speaking French, this person is speaking German. How do we get French and German to equal the same thing, right? And that's how it works. And uh, you can typically find these things. I mean, the entire app store and anywhere is basically designed to work like an API, just basically series APIs. And in addition to that, I mean, there's you can. What's interesting is this is what's really enabled us to be able to share information between platforms. Before, you used to have these silos where data was stuck and you're like, oh, I wish I could get it from here into Excel or here into there. Well, now with APIs, it's becoming a, more, a much more standard common thing to have and offer. So it's pretty accessible. And there's even companies out there, one company specifically called Zapier. All they do is create APIs for companies that don't even ask for it. So for example, you know, you take a picture 
and you post it to Facebook, well, they can have, they have an API where it will download that and put it in your Google Drive as a backup automatically, right? So all this stuff can be happening in the background without you thinking about it. Fantastic. So the average investor or financial person, how would they, how would they experience APIs? That's a great question. So the reason why that's important is because, again, let's talk about the disparate systems we had before. CRM, financial planning, uh, rebalancing software, more so in the US and Canada, just any number of things, including reporting, like these things couldn't talk to each other before. And now they can, right? Now it is possible for you to have integration where, whereby you put data in one time as opposed to repeating it over and over again, right? And the number of times, you know, the number of times I've heard my biggest pain in the butt is having to retype my client data in from here to here to here. Well, that doesn't have to be the way anymore, right? If the software is architected properly and someone basically writes the code in between, then you can literally have all that data flow and be accessible in multiple places. Great. So it makes our lives a lot easier then. Absolutely. The, the future is definitely a more integrated one, right? It's a, it's a more modular one in that you can go to different vendors for different things, but APIs allow integration across different modules. So the next one I want to ask you about is, and I think Amazon fits in here somewhere. Yeah. What does AWS stand for? Yeah. So um, back in the day when you had a tech company, what you would do is one of the first things you would do is you buy servers, right? And that was expensive because it was a lot of equipment and you parked in the corner and you do your stuff on the servers and you basically open up to the internet to let it out to the rest of the world. What Amazon did several years ago was they basically realized that there was a need for people to outsource this. Now, outsourcing companies already existed where you could just go online and, and hire server space from somewhere else and work remotely, but it wasn't great. What Amazon did was they started a division called AWS, Amazon Web Services, and they basically built a system that was very modular, very scalable, so that any company can come on and for peanuts, literally cents per day, start to code their program, right? Now, that's when you're starting. When you start getting traffic, then they start charging you, right? So what happened is, is that they basically did this because they needed the systems for themselves. And they said, why not just basically create a best-in-class thing that we offer to the rest of the world and use our cost efficiencies to drive the cost down? So when you're Amazon, you're a large buyer of servers, and you are also are... You also have talented technicians who basically focus on nothing but this. So basically what this did was this created an incredible ecosystem. It created a very, very low cost way for companies to get started. They didn't have to buy equipment, right? If you had a laptop, you could start coding if you were a coder. So a lot of companies are powered by AWS and people have no idea. Netflix got rid of their own servers and pushed all their content onto AWS. Companies like Dropbox and, and Box.com, places like that, they, they basically drop, they basically use AWS as a backbone. Apple uses AWS for a lot of stuff, I believe, too. Now, they're not the only player in town. Uh, Microsoft very much is on these web services campaigns as well. So Azure is their product, and Google has one, too. And basically, those are the big three. But but AWS is the largest one. I think uh, one saw a survey that says something between 40 to 60% of all cloud services offered on the internet are offered through AWS. That's fascinating. And, yeah. I, and I imagine combined with a, uh, IBM and, and the other, is it's more like 70 or 80%. Well, I don't even sure how much of a player IBM is in this space. I don't think they are. They got out of that. They, they may provide some of the infrastructure and technology, but in terms of actually offering it, I mean, you have Amazon and all these companies, all three of these companies going out and creating server farms in the middle of nowhere that have power. And basically, like these things are enormous, like multi-football fields long, right. high security so that no one can get into them. And basically, they host data from any number of thousands of companies. And the thing that's insane is this is actually the most profitable division of Amazon by a long shot. 
the majority of their profit. I mean, Amazon chooses to win the report profit, but one thing's for certain, if you break it down division by division, AWS is, is basically the crown jewel right now in terms of profitability. And frankly, the way to look at, look at it really, and this was described by a, a commentator named, um, named Ben Thompson who termed uh, what he calls the Amazon tax. AWS is basically a tax on the entire internet when you think about it, right? Because they're getting a slice of every company's profitability who basically chooses to host on them, right? And they're the largest player and they control the largest amount of cloud space. Man, it's uh, it's a big number. And you know, you have to you have to think about the cost efficiencies. If you're a tech company, you're not going to get the same kind of cost efficiencies Amazon is, right? right? You know, the only companies who do their own type of thing, like Salesforce is the one that comes to mind. Salesforce right. is a behemoth, right? So do they have their own dedicated server farms, especially for confidentiality? Absolutely they do. But few companies can afford to do that. So the next one that comes to mind, and I've, I've been hearing a lot more about it recently, but GDPR. GDPR, Global Data Protection Rights. So here's the thing. Uh, you know how the Europeans like regulation? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had to sign five forms to take a bus over there. And, you know, it's an interesting contrast to what happens in North America in terms of lack of regulation and slow regulation. So GDPR, basically the European Union got together and said, you know what? We don't like the fact that all these tech companies have access to all this personal data and they're monetizing it and making money off of this. And okay, that's fine. And we're getting stuff in return, but what are our rights in this? Like, where is the consumer protected? And that's the good thing about Europe is that Europe typically looks at it from a consumer first standpoint, as opposed to the North American attitude of looking at it from a, from a business first standpoint. So they came out with these laws that basically cover some of the stuff that you would normally think, right? So some of the stuff like essentially, um, one of the things that's interesting is that they now have enforced their rules across borders, which before tech companies could play hide and seek and basically hide technology across, you know, it went from a European country to another European country so that other authorities can get to it. Can't do that in Europe anymore. They also want data that's for European citizens hosted in, in Europe. So that's under their law. So that's also being passed. Penalties, the, the need for consent. Companies can't ask for everything in the, under the sun unless there's a reason for it, right? So only there's limitations on what they can ask for. There's limitations on how long they can hold that data. But some of the more important ones that are quite interesting and that the two biggest ones are quite frankly, the right to be forgotten, right? So the first one is, is literally, if you want Google to wipe out everything that they have on you, you have that right. I mean, it's the internet. It's hard to accomplish that because someone says they don't like me on their blog post, right? I can't enforce them to take it down without getting lawyers involved. And even so, what's the condition? But the right to be forgotten is one that seems to be one that is, is resonating. So if you don't like the fact that Facebook's got history going back on you for so long, Google's got that going back on you for so long, we can request that they wipe everything clean. You have a blank, you have a blank slate again. So that's the first one. The second one that's really interesting, and this one is 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 an interesting Pandora's box of opportunity, is data portability. So the way they specifically word it is they basically want people to have the right to transfer data in a commonly used and machine-readable format between the data holder, so the, uh, the company that's collected it, and anyone that you consent to. So before, let's use banks, for example, banks in Canada in particular, who always are the being in my existence and, and my enemy in this, <laughs> in this podcast. But essentially, you look at your banking history. You can pull down banking history for 12 to 18 months. You want anything further than that? Good luck. They're going to charge you for it, right? But not only that, so it's available. It's available to me. But it's difficult for computer technology to get to it. Why? Because they have yet to build an API to in this country that allows any company, anything, anyone access to transactional data. 
right? They say it's for security purposes. I say it's for creating a moat around their about, around our data, which we have a right to. But essentially, they make it difficult, and they make it difficult too because they basically try to prevent data aggregators, the likes of Mint.com, uh, Yoli, which powers a lot of data aggregators, and Quovo, who's going to be a guest on this show. They basically try to make it difficult for these people to scrape the data. And they will say things like, oh, well, they'll say or claim things like, if you basically scrape data off of this site and give your, your bank card information to any other online source, you're voiding your fraud protection. Well, here's the problem with that. They will then turn around and offer their own data aggregator. So it's okay for them to collect your data from other banks. But if someone collects the data from the bank that they're, that, from that bank, oh, oh no, sorry, your fraud protection is gone. That has not been challenged in court yet, but I've been told by several lawyers that that will die a very quick death in court because you can't take both positions. So GDPR is interesting because banks would be forced to give up that data. So now let's think about all the permutations. And when Sean Brayman from Plan Plus was here, we started brainstorming some of them. And my God, like you think about the fact, like let's say you're, you know, you have a jewelry shop, for example, and someone comes in and can't quite afford it. They would want to buy it on a credit card. Well, there's nothing stopping you from having access to an app that gives that they can grant you authorization to view their credit profile on, giving you a credit score, and you could become the bank to them. You could basically finance the loan because you can score them as good as any bank now because you have access to all their data. So that has ramifications for some of the companies that you've had on here, like a lending loop or something like that as well. Then. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, to, to actually, if anything, I think lending loop becomes kind of the marketplace for it, right? Marketplace. So they they basically, as we heard in the show, they use a lot of machine learning and mm-hmm. some parallel processing to basically find out to score the risk tolerance for the, 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 the borrowers, right? And they're thus far, they've actually overestimated the risk. Well, the more data they have, the more likely they are to be able to put together a profile. Uh, one of the most fascinating cases of data aggregation and, and uh, use of this information came out of Africa. And I, I can't remember the woman's name. I got to look it up, but I'm um, looking up as we speak. But there's a TED Talk on it. And basically what she did was the problem with the unbanked in Africa is how do you get information to assess risk, right? So what they did was they created an app that would scan your Android phone. Now in Africa, everything's an Android phone because Apple's too expensive. Shivani Soraya, I'm butchering her name. Shivani Soraya, incredible TED Talk. Anyway, so they would scan your Android phone and look at any number of factors that you wouldn't necessarily think had anything to do with lending. How often did you call your mom? Who are the top 10 people in your most called list? How often do you browse pornography, right? Like what are the, like the tone of messages in your email? They would scan all of that and use that to create a risk score. And they have created, they've collected so much data that they can literally say, well, you know what? You may think that it's good that the guy calls his dad on a regular basis, but if it correlates with these two things as well, then it's, he's a bad lending risk. Like they've actually framed all that and they've been able to create risk profiling around that. So in North America, it is an interesting thing about Africa. The lack of data rights there have opened up the ability to do this, right? So that's kind of interesting. Now, what GDPR is trying to do is move to a world where that sort of data mining is possible, but only with the consent of the individual. And on top of that, no more silos, right? You can't have data that basically is not accessible from different places. One of the early guests on the show was a company called Honest, right? Mm-hmm. Honest does one of the key things they do is data aggregation. One of the big trends I think that's going to come out of this is further regulation around the world that looks like GDPR, but the advent of what I call personal data lockers. So the ability to basically, if you have all this data in like five, three different banks and insurance company, whatever it is, that's fine that you can transfer it between companies, but you're going to need a centralized repository for putting it yourself, right? And I think we're going to see the advent of a number of companies that start doing that. And I think Honest is very early to the show there. So do you think uh, GDPR, similar regulation will come, 
go into the states, given what happened to Microsoft and the 71 million users that got their data hacked? Oh, well, that's, are you thinking Microsoft or Facebook? Did I say Facebook? Well, they're blue counties. So, so yeah. Facebook, yeah. So I think the U.S. is a challenge because, you say what you will, there's a lot of corporate influence there. And I think because of that, it's harder to get those things passed. But you listen to people in the technology spheres, and they're talking about like the need for like constitutional amendments to protect privacy rights. And I think that that is absolutely something that needs to be looked at. I don't know who's going to, what politicians are going to have the appetite for that because of the money they take from different collectives. But the one thing that's for sure is the U.S. is not going to be the last country standing on this. So as these data rights issues spread around the world, and, and Europe has led the way on that, I think you're going to see, I mean, China's never going to pass anything like that. They're never going to figure it out. But I think you're going to see pressure mount elsewhere. And let's face it, uh, that Facebook hack was big. The Equifax hack was big. It was big. Yeah. And they were both dumb. They were both really stupid engineering problems. I mean, one was just a dumb password. The reality is, is that this is going to keep on happening. Right. Right. And unless we have rights to protect ourselves and the right to, to eliminate anything going forward or anything on these, these places going forward, it's, it's going to be a problem. So we are sorely over, basically we're, we're waiting far too long in North America for this to take place. But the good thing is we have to see how the European experiment happens and it'll be interesting to see how that works. Well, it's interesting you say that the, uh, the right to your own information and the right to wipe your, your, your slate yeah. clean because uh, you know, I'm going back a couple of years ago, but there was a very controversial hack. You might remember Ashley Madison. Oh, where, yeah. Where, <laughs> where they found out there was all two women on Ashley Madison. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was fun. But there was a lot of people there that thought their data was, was erased, but it wasn't. And ultimately, their, list, their names were left on lists. Oh, and the lists that were public. You could look up how many yep. people actually scrolled through that list to see where everybody worked. And there was a lot of people working at certain accounting firms and tech companies <laughs> exactly. that I'm not going to mention. But that was just out of curiosity. But yeah, that was exactly this sort of thing is going to happen. I mean, the reality is, is... Kids are taught today, and unfortunately, they don't listen, that whatever you put online, consider it there forever, yeah. right? Like the stupid things you do in university could prevent you from getting the job you want because, oh, look, he's doing a keg stag on a beer bong and like just any number of things, right? So yeah. your reputation can be destroyed very quickly. It can be, you can destroy your own reputation very quickly online. Absolutely. Yeah. As, as parents of young kids, I'm sure that's a fear we both have. That resonates, yeah. So uh, next one I had here was platforms. Uh, yeah, oh, platforms mean a lot of different things, but but tell me what that means in this context. That's pretty of a concert. No. <laughs> so so basically, uh, that term is bandied around a lot on, in the Valley, and, and Facebook likes to consider themselves a platform, and there's a lot of debate about that. The, the term platform really is a technological system that allows other people to build other functions over top of it. So the most common example for this is quite simply an operating system, right? Microsoft built Windows, Apple built iOS, but all the other programs that basically came on, that can work on top of them, say, for example, Adobe Acrobat or Photoshop, Word, all that, those are not platforms. Those are, those are functions. Those are applications, right? And without the technology of a platform, think about what would have to happen for you to work in Word. You would have the coder would have to write everything down from the base software of how to operate the RAM and the ROM and the CPU and all of that. They would literally have to copy that and do that in every program, right? They'd have to create the, recreate that. So you know, remember when you were a kid and you get these little single purpose computers that would do math, right? Like that's not a platform. That was an application that right. went all the way down the channel, right? right. A platform allows allowed in that case developers to not worry about the operations of the computer. You had instructions to tell a computer how to do something, but all the stuff on how the computer worked with the hardware was behind it. So a platform is something that lets people build over top of it. And at AWS, which we just talked about, is a perfect example. They created an online platform for the development of, future, of other technologies, right? Okay. Operating systems. 
Those are the most common ones. But everyone seems to want to build a platform. Why? Because platforms are very profitable and very, very powerful. Why? Because, hey, you're basically taxing everything that uses you. And frankly, it's also something that is is basically going to, everybody's going to try for, but it requires scale. That's where a lot of these things that call themselves platforms necessarily aren't. The, the best definition of a platform is when you, when you try to define what is a platform, what isn't, Bill Gates said it best one time. I think he said something to the effect of, I mean, someone else called what they did a platform. He's like, that's nonsense. You're not a platform. A platform is something that exists, something that, something where the total net value of what is created on top of you exceeds the value that you create. Okay. Right? So, Think of the phone systems, for example. Telephones are a platform. Think about all the business that transacts over phone calls. Fascinating. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Internet, same basic principle. Yeah. The internet's a platform. All right, so next one. We're getting into some deep stuff here. So tell us, tell your audience and tell me what your thoughts are on AI and machine machine learning in, the, in today's world. In today's world, and then we can get into FinTech too. So AI... Artificial intelligence, we're not talking Skynet yet here or, or uh, cyborgs walking around, or tons of cyborgs, but robots away. walking around. Yeah. If you saw the Google I.O. Uh, demo, yeah, hey, we're not that far away. So the reality is it's a combination of a number of technologies, right? So the entire idea with artificial intelligence is to create something that would essentially pretty much act, uh, at, or act or compute faster or as fast in human, as human beings. So right now we have in most places what we call narrow AI. So narrow AI, computers are really good. It's, it's a lot of work to, treat, to teach an AI. So it's hard to teach them what we call everything or general purpose AI. So general purpose AI is a concept of you know, data on Star Trek, whatever it is, right? He can do anything. But we have AI everywhere now, right? We have AI from Siri, no matter how good or bad she is. She can book reminders, all that sort of thing. So that's a narrow AI, some things that they can do. The AI on a Tesla. It can drive itself more or less, right? And again, that's very narrow because it can do one thing. You know, ask the Tesla to cook a meal. It's not going to do that, right? right? So what we have there is, is the very first generation. So we have, narrow AI is, is not easy, but it's the easier form of AI. But it's really a combination of a number of technologies, right? So you look at the Tesla, it's a combination of image recognition with mapping technology, right? And really, so it's not this, there's no one technology that's AI, uh, machine learning is a concept that basically uh, where you throw a ton of data at a computer and it mines that data and looks for patterns that the human mind can't recognize. So it basically does teach itself to iterate and learn as new data comes in. Right? So as, as you described that, uh, years ago, it was, it was a famous case where, where a computer beat the world's best chess champion. And then more recently, yep. the game Go. Yep. So so is that machine learning or is that AI or is that a combination? Of that is, so that is... That is basically very narrow intelligence, artificial intelligence that is likely machine learning. It is also probably some, there's other, some other terms I'm going to get wrong, but there's probability engines that they basically try to gauge behavior. Those type of things are math. And then the, the, the crazy thing about some of those stories. So the Kasparov being beat thing, funny story from there, he apparently got really messed up by this one move that he couldn't figure out why the computer did it. And it really messed with his head. Well, the programmers went back and looked at it, and it turned out that it was a mistake. It was a mistake. <laughs> so, yeah. so there was that. Uh, the Go situation was funny because, I mean, Facebook came out saying, we're going to have an AI in a couple of years that can be it went to Go. And then Google came out and said, oh, yeah, we haven't announced it yet. We did it last week. And then the funny thing is they came out with another version of that Go, a Go computer that beat the first Go computer hands down. And that, that first Go one was nuts because apparently it played a game that never been played before. <laughs> so it, it figured out how to play it in a way that humans hadn't. So that's interesting and frightening. 
So tell me about the wealth simples of the world or the betterments of the world, et cetera. So they're, they're using a lot of machine learning or AI in their technology. I, I, don't, I don't know that that's the case too much. I mean, they're using a lot of algorithmic programming, right? So, you know, in terms of when do you buy and sell things, when do you, when do you basically tax loss harvest? Those are all rule sets to be programmed. So algorithms are part of a artificial intelligence, right? Because you can program things to behave a certain way. It doesn't iterate. It doesn't learn. Like, again, the key is for it to basically change its own programming to some degree so they can improve upon itself. There are is one robo-advisor in Canada that is using artificial intelligence to do active, rebal- active management rebalancing. Right. So I've got to have them on the show, but they're booked. But I think, I think the investing side of the world, there is definitely some plays I've seen that are looking at using AI to basically do fundamental research. I've seen that because, again, they can process data far faster than any of us could. The more interesting play for me, and I think the future is going to be, is, uh, is, is financial planning is going to be really revolutionized by it. When you think about the amount of time that goes into a financial plan, a lot of it's data population, right? Well, so let's see, data aggregation, GDPR will help solve some of the stuff like that is going to help make that easier. In the right. U.S., they've already benefited from that in the likes of, you know, Right Capital and, and uh, eMoney who really led the charge on, on data aggregation. And now NavaPlan and others are basically launching data aggregation as well. So data collection is being reduced in terms of the amount of time spent. But then it comes down to how much time is the advisor spending tinkering? And yeah, we're using our training. We're imposing our views. But picture a financial planning AI system that literally just figures it out for you. Literally tests, optimizes everything. I mean, yeah, it does the, a Monte Carlo simulation on, on a bunch but of But on, on tons of things, right? Oh, so, like, yeah. I mean, we look at Monte Carlo simply as a methodology for testing different probability outcomes based on returns, right? right. But, you know, look at some of the other variables, right? Like, you know, do you start taking money out of, you know, registered accounts in Canada, qualified accounts in the U.S. earlier than later. In the U.S., you have something called a 401k, yeah, sorry, a Roth, a Roth uh, 401k rollover. Is there an optimal time to do that? You have situations whereby, I look at all the time, we get, a fine, we get people retiring early and they have very low tax rates. Right. Do we try to realize tax in those, in those terms in order to maximize for, in order to harvest those lower tax return rates? Well, all that sort of stuff. Like when you start, how do you optimize for Canada pension plan or social security? Mm-hmm. We have to tinker. We have rules. We have calculators. We have all that. It can test it a lot far, faster than we can. I mean, literally, you know, the goal should be honestly for the financial plan to build itself with the AI. And I'm not trying to put myself and other people out of, out of work, but that's the reality we're heading towards. And I think the financial planner still is there because there are going to be certain things in terms of the person's behavior and their, their psychology that we're going to be having to first of all, first and foremost, audit and explain what happened and understand what happened and yeah. why and what the reasoning was. We can challenge it and test it to make sure it's right. And then delivery to the client, making sure that it fits their needs is still going to be a value to the, to the clients. So I think that that is still, you know, as much as people think that we're going to automate the entire world away, the human aspect is still very difficult to automate away. However, again, if you saw the Google I.O. demo of, of the uh, Google Assistant booking appointments for restaurants and haircuts, man, I... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, it, it is a little scary sometimes. So it lends for a uh, a future of guaranteed income, right? Where we're well, yes, guaranteed basic income yeah. is, is an interesting one. That's we're not going to get into that one, but that's that's an experiment. I hope to see done just so we can understand the, the ramifications of it. Right, rather than just the test markets in Hamilton, etc. Yeah, we're doing that in Toronto, in Ontario already. So, right, yeah. so in the behemoth, the, the the elephant in the room here. Yeah, is obviously blockchain. Yeah, we're going to spend most of the time talking about this, aren't yeah. we? So, so first of all, before you get into blockchain, I think there's still a lot of confusion as to what blockchain is versus cryptocurrency. Yes. So why don't you spend some time talking about what blockchain is and, and the difference between blockchain and cryptos, yeah. and then we can get into some of the fundamentals of uh, blockchain itself. So let's go back to the origin, and then we'll get to blockchain, and then we'll go into cryptocurrencies. So 
Back in 2008, when the world was falling apart, this white paper appeared online. And it was written by someone, quote unquote, claiming to be someone called Satoshi Nakamura. Whether that is an actual real person or a group of people, it's hard to say because we don't really have much proof. And no one's ever stepped forward to, people have stepped forward, but no one's been able to prove it. The reality is, is that it was an interesting stroke of genius. And it proposed a alternative currency that was completely in the digital realm. So why was this revolutionary? Well, it was revolutionary because think about the internet. The internet is a one-to-many relationship, right? If think about what happened with Napster, you could take a single audio file and it can be copied millions of times out there. There was no guarantee of ownership, right? So you can take anything on the internet, post a picture and duplicates are exist everywhere in no time. How do you in that world transact with between parties and ensure that the dollar I'm spending with Guy is not being spent with Joe? Well, you can't, you couldn't, right? You only could do it. Exactly. The only you could do it was to trust an intermediary in the middle. And those intermediaries were the credit card companies and the banks who charged princely sum for it, to be honest. So basically that was the problem. That's why we always relied on those companies for it. Now in 2008, everybody was annoyed with the financial institutions and basically, you know, the concept of fiat currency does not sit well with some people. And this concept of the Bitcoin paper came out and it was really breathtaking piece of, of computing know-how and also social engineering. So nowhere in that paper is a mention of blockchain. It actually mentions blocks, but the term blockchain was created afterwards. So let's talk about the blockchain is the blockchain is the underlying architecture of every crypto security that exists or a cryptocurrency, whatever it is. And it is the technology or the, the code that basically is similar across the board. And when I say it's similar, you can modify these things. You can change and create all different ones. But the underlying theory of how it's all strung together is, is all the same. So what is a blockchain? Let's say I, Jason, send you guy a Bitcoin or whatever it is. There is a transaction recorded, right? So who records this transaction? Well, this is pushed out to a network and that network has various nodes. So lots of different people who are running their own computers who are basically keeping a record of every transaction occurring. This is what's known as an open ledger. It's a ledger that- Distributed ledger. Distributed ledger. So it's basically distributed to multiple parties, right? So instead of going to one bank or one credit card company, it goes to multiple computers, right? Everyone verifies. Everybody everybody gets gets a record of it. What happens with this data then? Well, what happens then is that that transaction along with several others gets grouped into blocks. And basically, so I'm gonna deal with you know enough transactions to fill this, this particular specific space. So I have, like, let's call it 10 transactions, for example, just as a hypothetical. Let's say every transaction forms a block. So what happens is, is that each of these individual computers, which are also known as miners, they would then basically work on finding a way to encrypt those transactions, the details of Jason sending transaction uh, money to Guy and Vice and everybody else in the world doing the same thing. They're trying to find a way to encode that into a cryptographic piece. So what that means is, is that it's a block that is represented by all those transactions are represented by one long line of code. And that long line of code does two things. It transforms all the data that we had in those transactions, plus also references the block that came before it into one new block. So that line of code Basically, what they're doing to create that is something called hashing. It is a cryptographic trick. You basically, cryptographic means to encode things in code, like basically to, to, to make things code so you can't just read them as is. So these computers do something called hashing in order to create the block. And in hashing, they create this long, it's basically a kind of brute force thing. You have to keep on just trying to randomly try to guess how to encode this until it reaches a certain line that has a certain value. I'm not gonna do this for the record people. I'm not gonna do blockchain full justice because it's very complicated and trying to explain in simple terms is very difficult. And even some very, very bright people explain this very wrong, very poorly. 
In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to link some uh, episodes of different podcasts that do a really good job on this to the show notes. So as I was saying, this new block is created. This new block has all the data of our transactions and it has a reference to the block that came before it, right? And hence the chain. Exactly. Right. So it creates a chain, right? All the way back to what's known as the, to the first block, what's known as the Genesis block. So every transaction that's ever occurred in that currency now is encoded on this chain. So if we need to audit that, that's fine. We can look on the block, uncode that the block and basically find that transaction. Now, what happens if someone tries to mess with that? So here's what happens. So all these different nodes basically do that. And then the first one who does it, who accomplishes it, pushes that information, that line of code out to the rest of the computers. The computers are, it takes a long time to create that code, but it takes very little time to verify that code. Right. So all the other computers basically look at it and say, yep, you know what? Your computer was the first one to basically generate that. Here's a coin in exchange for your work. Right. And then guess what? All of their ledgers add that block to the ledger. So now you have multiple copies, right? So you have multiple copies. So if someone messes with a single block, here's what happens. Let's say I want to change the transaction from Jason to Guy to Jason to Jane. And I go and I try to change that. The problem is you change the entire hash. You change that entire block. So you just basically ruined the entire... So now that reference, so now that next block, which references the block that our transaction happened in, it references nothing. It doesn't match, right? So the chain is broken. So that's the first piece of protection is that breaking the chain creates an obvious break. So when that happens, a couple of things, the system knows something's wrong, there's a break. So it would try to verify the code with all the other blocks, with all the other ledgers. Right. The other ledger would be like, no, that code doesn't work. So it would just ignore that block and would continue on with the proper blocks. So essentially there's, a, there's an audit function built into the system. And the only other way to, the only real way to overrule it is to basically edit the same block in the amount of time it takes to generate a new block on 51% of all the computers. Right? So the more computers you have operating on this, the harder it is to hack. So basically what happens is to sum it up, you have a transaction that gets a bunch of other transactions, creates a record that references, imagine a book, creates a book of records, mm -hmm. but that book references the previous record. Right. The trick is, is that if you change anything in that book, it's going to change the reference to the previous record. So it breaks it. I think you did actually a pretty good job explaining that, Jason. That's pretty difficult. So basically now that is the blockchain. Now, why is this important? So let's talk about the currency aspect first. So now the double spend problem is solved. I can't spend the same dollar I spend with Guy that I do with Jane. Because if I give you the dollar, but then I, quite, then I try to give Jane the dollar, what happens? Well, you the transaction tries to verify and they verify that, uh-uh, sorry, Jason, you spent that dollar. That transaction is garbage. Right. My understanding is this can be instantaneous as opposed to involving a bank or a credit card company yeah. that has to... Has I, I wouldn't to say instantaneous. There is time. I mean, well, especially Bitcoin the way... Bitcoin takes 10 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Bitcoin but, takes about 10 minutes. We have some other ones like Lumens, I think is down to like... Well, Litecoin's Litecoin. Faster. Litecoin's faster. Monero's faster. Yeah. I think I think Ripple. Stellar's Lumens is down. Ripple's faster. Stellar's Ripple's down like a couple of seconds, right? Right. So, so um, it's not instantaneous, it's but not it's ultra fast compared to yeah. transacting through a bank, which, exactly. which is a controlled ledger because they control the transaction and verify the, exactly. the transaction between two parties, right? Exactly. But the problem is there. And so, so the good thing is, is that, hey, we've got this system whereby we don't have to, the best definition I heard of this is, guess what? We don't have to trust everybody anymore. Right? We don't have to trust you because now we can verify, right? And it's amazing how much of the financial system is built on trust, right? Like you even so talk about 
Yeah, you even talk about how brokers sell transactions. It's like, okay, this transaction is sellable. We'll send you the security over in the next three days. Like that's that's how it works. Like literally they have three yeah. days to deliver it, right? Yeah. So they're just trusting you that you actually have the security. Yeah. So now you don't have to trust because it's done very quickly. So the- um, Yeah, so talk about the currencies and then we yeah. can get into some of the implications yeah. in the so, financial world. So why is this, is this of interest? So here's the thing about this. You basically generate, the currency are the coins that are generated in the generation of a crypto of a block. They're important for a couple of things. First of all, they incentivize the miners to actually do their job, right? They're getting right. paid in something. Now they're getting paid in essentially Chuck E. Cheese tokens, right? That's basically what it is, right? right. It's just like, here's the token. It's only worth something if people believe it's worth something, just like currency to some degree. Just like gold. Yeah. Exactly, right? So why the tokens worth something? It's not so much that the tokens are worth something. It's that, let's just say I want to send anything to you. Let's still call it Canadian dollars, American dollars, whatever it is, right? right? Well, in order to transact on that chain and use that system to do it without a third-party intermediary and at a lower cost, mm -hmm. then guess what? That token, I have to basically convert money into that token and then basically transfer that token to you, then you convert back. So essentially what I'm buying is the method, it's like a piece of paper, right? If the only way for us to exchange money was to use these special pieces of paper and basically like a check, for example, imagine a world where checks were limited, right? right. If checks were limited, then checks would have value themselves. So because these tokens are limited, that gives them inherent value because if I have to buy one before I do a transaction on it and you have to sell it, well, now there's a market for it in the middle, right? Now, this is attractive to people. This was originally conceived of as solely a currency, right? So the question was, how do we create a currency online where people can't multiply it in perpetuity and we can trust transactions, right? And that's what Bitcoin solved. That's what Bitcoin did. It was basically... It basically found a way for people to basically not double spend, to limit the amount of, of coins and basically create a world where we can literally transact online with security. And the implications there are you can send money across the world where before you'd need a uh, Western Express, Union, Western got, Union yeah. or something like that. Yep. And now you can send money back to family back home. And it's just a matter of, like you said, exchanging your currency for the Bitcoin and they exchange it back into their local currency. But it can be done virtually instantaneously. Yeah. And another piece of it is anonymity. So everything's sent to wallets and these wallets have keys, right? Private keys and public keys. Your private key allows you access to your wallet and to your record. Your public key, on the other hand, is basically the one you give out to, it's like your mailing address, right? It's or your post office box, for lack of a better term, right? You have a post office box, only you can get into it with your private key, but people don't know where you live. Fair enough. In this case, right. people don't know who you are. Right. So that's the currency aspect. Okay. So, so there's, hundreds if not thousands of currencies out there More every day before we were talking last week and before i came in here today i went on the ethereum website and i created my own my own ico yeah it's that it was that, <laughs> it was easy, that easy it was basically took me about half an hour i didn't launch it because i thought there might be industry regulations that i'd have to disclose. the sec so, is very much cracking out yeah. so now, so yeah. it doesn't there is no guy coin out there yet but i did go through the process it's very easy right now to actually Create your own coin because the, the code is public. Ethereum yep. has a public site and you can just copy their code. So it's, it's fascinating. Yep. But let's come back to, say, the, the blockchain. So now we've got cryptocurrencies are based on the blockchain technology. But blockchain has a lot more Our applications. Offer. So yeah. let, let's talk about maybe smart contracts and Ethereum yeah. and some of the other applications. So Ethereum, which was created, um, which was project was led by a, a brilliant man by the name of Vitalik Buterin of Toronto, basically realize that hey anything can be encoded on this chain not just not just transactions yeah. we can encode contracts we can encode anything that we can have an input and output for we can encode that so theoretically you can basically create a blockchain for the transfer of real estate for example i own i want to sell my property 
I will exchange that for X Bitcoin and the registration is held on the blockchain. So theoretically, it's entirely possible for someone to transact anything in there. You can also create, like I said, contracts that create conditions. If you can code a condition. So say, for example, one of the things I talked to someone briefly about once was the idea of having blockchain around financial planning. Yeah. And the idea was an accountability blockchain, right? So every advisor's had the same experience where clients said, you know, you told me you'd be, I'd be at X by now and I'm not. What happened between them? Did they, was the performance, was it that the advisor failed to do something? Was it that the client failed to contribute the money they were supposed to? Or they took out. Right, or they took money out and forgot about it, right? right. Well, creating, like, again, imagine a situation where you create a financial plan or investment plan, whatever it is, you know, you sign off on it, client stamps it as, a, as basically approved, and then now it's tied into their account, and right. the actions are monitored, and the, the violating party is basically called down on that, right? right? So what happens is that that part that, that contract's violated. There's a record of that. You can create a new one to put yourself on a new path, but now you have an on a trail, right? Whereas before, you have to either someone had to take notes, and the other person had to remember. So talking about the the audit trail and real estate, like you raise a good point there because if you have title on a property right now, there's there's title insurance, yep. so you have to verify that you own the property and there's no liens against it. But if you have a if you have a blockchain transaction that verifies the legal exchange of the property, as long as your private key is secure, then yes, yeah, then so yeah, it'll be damn near impossible to get it out of there. So what are the ramifications? Now I've heard I've heard this devastating ramifications for the accounting industry. What are your thoughts on that for blockchain? Oh, yeah. So one of the biggest things that back offices have to do between banks and securities companies is reconciliation. So, oh, we sent you X amount of money. You sent us Y. Wait a minute. It shouldn't have been that. It should have been that plus $10. And, you know, trying to balance these things out. The fact that now there is a ledger that is distributed and equal pretty much at all times, right? Because 51% equals whatever the truth is. That eliminates the need for, for any kind of reconciliation department. That's the honest reality of it. And when you think about it, you know, corollary is spreadsheets before the advent of well, what became Excel, but what was VisiCal back VisiCal back in the day, yeah. right? Before computerized spreadsheets, yeah. accounting departments used to have tons of people working on long sheets of paper with calculators and pencils. I mean, it's hard yeah. to imagine that now, but that was the reality. Yeah. The entire industry got put out of business over almost overnight because of that. It was right? called a spreadsheet for a reason. Right? Yeah, it was spread across the table, yeah. right? And they were huge, right? And they would cost a fortune to get done. Now it's like button clicks, formulas, everything, right? So that's anyone that's in a reconciliation type function, especially in the financial world, those are not jobs that are long for this world much longer. Yeah, but even the uh, the bookkeeping, bookkeeping jobs and, yeah. and even accounting, like I've talked to a few accountants who are very concerned about the next generation of accounts going through because like you said, well, like for reconciling, yeah, reconciling transactions, it's verified yeah. at the instant it's yeah. done. There's no need for well, no need is, for people to be there. Yeah. The audit function starts to disappear. You still have to know where, you know, what transactions go into what category or whatever, but a lot of accounting, accounting firms, you look at the price for what's known as notice to reader in Canada where, you know, no, no audit versus audit accounting. It's a big differential. And a lot of that's manpower hours. Well, if those manpower Hours are not needed anymore. There's some of the cost gone. So, what further implications do you see in the financial services industry? You talked about privacy before and the, and the right to your own information. What about the anti-money laundering aspects? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So, the thing is, is that people think Bitcoin's anonymous. It's not. The NSA and the CIA like the joke is they like to refer to it as uh, prosecution futures. Basically, oh wow. I have a history of every transaction that happened here. All I have to do is figure out who this public key is and who that public key is, and I will find the person. Now, that's not the easiest thing to do, but if money, and you know, unless everything stayed online, the second, the weakest point is when money enters the chain and when it exits the chain, right? So if you want to take it and convert it, your dollars and convert it into Bitcoin, there's a transaction that happens there. There's a record and your name is, comes up to it on anti-money laundering. 
coming out, exact same thing. Yeah. So yeah, it definitely makes it easier. I mean, that's why it basically was the tool of choice. Bitcoin was the tool of choice for a lot of drug dealers and, and cartels for a while, but those records exist. And yeah. that's the thing. And then, you know, there's been, there's been rumors about, or been talked about some people figuring out how to crack the encryption pretty quickly. So I'm always surprised by people who think that something is going to be secure forever. Um, that this doesn't make sense to me. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think the bigger implications are the simple fact that this kind of technology, anything that underlies ownership or transactions, this is the future of all infrastructure. Like this is it. Blockchain is the future of how we send money to each other, how we transfer, how we transact in securities. It is is the future of anything having to do with an immutable record. So it's interesting to say that because I've heard comments by people who are much smarter than me that suggest that blockchain is the next internet. It could be bigger than the internet in in the way that it changes the way that we do things. It's different and it's far less efficient. I mean, like the total power consumption right now is equivalent to something in the neighborhood of the Czech Republic, just for Bitcoin. (laughs) And the problem is, is that because you have so many computers doing so many things that are very power intensive, it's, it's very, very inefficient. Is it going to be bigger than the internet? No, I think it's the next generation of the internet, but I think the internet doesn't go away. I mean, we're not going to replace TCP IP for looking at website. We're not going to replace email with blockchain. There's no need for that. Do you want every, there's no need for every email you ever send to be stored in perpetuity on a blockchain. Like again, right. To be forgotten. Right. So is it going to be big? Yeah. It's going to be, we're, we're at the ground floor of the next wave of the internet. We literally are in the early, we're in the, we're in the mid to late nineties right now. But it's super early, and I see a lot of really bad ideas, and I see a lot of really good ideas. And God knows which one of them get to you know survive and become the next major companies. I have no idea. Yeah, I find it all so fascinating. So that's all that I had on my list in terms of. Well, we were almost we're coming up to an hour, so yeah, yeah, we better stop there. I did not do the greatest of job as describing Bitcoin, guy. Thank you for your decency in saying that I did. But I, like I said, I will link some podcast in the show notes specifically. There's one on the Tim Ferriss podcast with Nick Zabo who is one of the godfathers of cryptocurrency. And there was a series on um, Patrick O'Shaughnessy's uh, Invest Like the Best yeah. called uh, Hash Power. That was a fantastic job and they will do an infinitely better job than I ever could. Uh, hopefully this is enough to whet your appetite to check those out. So uh, thank you for being guest host, Guy. Thanks for having me, Jason. Thanks, it's been fun. Well, take care. So again, I did not do the greatest job on Bitcoin. I'm going to keep on beating myself up about that, but that's probably as good as I can get. With that, thanks again to Guy for being in and guest hosting. And if you enjoyed this podcast or the other episodes, which were probably better, by all means, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And feel free to email me. Uh, You can reach me at fintechimpact.co. Until next time, I'm Jason Pereira. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.